Radio Wareham. We present A Tree in Cool, a feature on Lady Gregory by Philip Rooney. The tree is a great copper beech. It stands in the skirts of the seven woods of Cool, close to where Lady Gregory's house once stood. Long ago its down-curving branches made a tent which reached to the ground and hid a tree trunk. Today the lower branches have been cropped short a dozen feet or so from the ground. A man-high wire fence surrounds the tree, designed to save it from sightseers with penknives and an itch for easy immortality. Through the meshes of the fence it is possible to see a haphazard collection of initials roughly carved in the grey-green skin of the tree. From beyond the somewhat forbidding fence, it all looks rather like one of those trees which have been unlucky enough to grow in a popular picnic spot, and so find themselves bearing for a tree's long lifetime the hearts and Cupid's knots and assurances of the undying love of J.J. for Emmy. But the tree in Cool Park represents a great deal more than that. Dennis O'Brien of Gort identifies the men who carved these initials. The largest one of all there is George Bernard Shaw's. You can see it. It's much larger than any of the others and uh, then of course you have um, uh, to, uh, Grace the Cricketer and um, Lady Gregory's own initials uh, Yeats um, to uh, J.B. Yeats and there underneath is Sean O'Casey and uh, there at the left-hand side is A. Russell's. A notable roll call. Few could have foreseen Lady Gregory's connection with that array of names on the day when the death of her husband made her Chatelaine of Cool Park. Yet a turning point may have come in her life on that day, which an old retainer of Cool so vividly conjures up for Charles Foley of Gort. One of the most interesting stories I heard about Lady Gregory was um, from John Divney. He told me that... Um, at the time that Sir William Gregory died, he was the day of his funeral, it was a very cold, snowy day. And he remembered seeing um, Lady Gregory's five brothers at the funeral. They were the purse, purses. And he described them as five tall men with five tall hats. An oddly dramatic picture. The youngish woman in her widow's weeds, supported by her five tall brothers at her husband's graveside. Black figures in a white landscape the daughter of a County Galway squire, the wife of a colonial administrator, the widow destined to take her humdrum place in the life of the county, keeping a kindly but watchful eye on her tenantry and filling up her quiet days in the social round of the Galway gentry houses. But that's not how it was at all. Within a half a dozen years after that snowy March day in 1892, Augusta Gregory had struck out an independent line for herself a line that was to be drawn clearly and boldly across the pages of Ireland's cultural history. Lennox Robinson has this to say of the years between 1892 and 1898. Lady Gregory had never been particularly interested in the theatre. She had married a distinguished Irishman. He had been governor of Ceylon, and after his retirement, he and his wife lived most of the months of the year in London, in the society of literary and political people. His home was Cool Park. Lady Gregory had been born a purse in a big country house, Roxburgh, not many miles away. The Gregory feelings were entirely Irish. Sir William and his forebears had been model landlords. And when he died, he was many years older than she, 
her thoughts went more and more across the Irish Sea. But in 1898, she had no ambitions as a writer. She had edited her husband's autobiography and letters of an ancestor of his, but she had written no original work. But she loved poetry and was particularly attracted by Yeats's poetry. Her friendship with Yeats and her admiration for the work of the poet, who was ten years her junior, was the beginning of the part she was to play in Irish letters. George Moore recalls that, despite the fact that she had edited her husband's memoirs and written some political pamphlets, there was little in our conversation in those early days to suggest literary faculty. Looking back, however, he sees that at core she must always have been literary, but that early circumstances had not proved favourable to the development of her gifts and it languished until she met Yeats. By the late 90s, Moore had visited Cool Park while Yeats was staying there and put on record his memories of that friendship from which was to come the Abbey Theatre and the revival of a country's literary life. Later in the afternoon, she took me into her confidence, telling me that Yeats came to Cool every summer because it was necessary to get him away from the distractions of London. I looked around thinking that perhaps life at Cool was arranged primarily to give him an opportunity of writing poems. As if she had read my thoughts, Lady Gregory led me into the back drawing room and showed me the table at which he wrote, and I admired the clean pens, the fresh ink, and the spotless blotter that were her special care every morning. I foresaw the straight sofa lying across the window, valued in some future time, because the poet had reclined upon it between his rhymes. My eyes thanked Lady Gregory for her devotion to literature. Instead of writing novels, she had released the poet from the quern of daily journalism. She told me that it was because she wanted poems from him that she looked askance at our project to write a play together. Later that afternoon, Lady Gregory was appeased with the news that he had written five and a half lines that morning and a promise that he would be back at six and would do a little more writing before dinner. A little of the acid which Moore could rarely resist mixing with the zinc can perhaps be detected here, but the author of Hail and Farewell did go away from cool that evening quite genuinely impressed by all that Lady Gregory was doing for the poet. He drove away thinking Yeats the most fortunate amongst us, he having discovered among all others that one who, by instinctive sympathy, understood the capacity of his mind and could wake it, and who never wearied of it, whether it came to her in elaborately worked stanzas or in the form of some simple confession. The mood of last night related as they crossed the sward after breakfast. As the moon is more interested in the earth than in any other thing, there is always some woman more interested in a man's moods than in anything else, and willing to follow it sentence by sentence. A great deal of Yeats's work must have come to her in fragments, a line and a half, two lines, and these she faithfully copied on her typewriter. Like so many of Moore's pictures, this was not the whole picture. Already... Two years before the end of the century, Yeats' mind was turning more and more to playwriting. He is full of playwriting, Lady Gregory herself recalls. And it was about this time, in the summer of 1898, that Yeats and Edward Martin 
and Lady Gregory were guests of Count de Pastor at his seaside house near Kinvara. There the plans for an Irish theatre began to take shape. To the shaping of those plans, Martin, Yates and Lady Gregory each brought special talents. Perhaps Lady Gregory's most useful contribution at that time was her readiness to undertake the job of organising and petitioning, of begging, in fact. On her typewriter, a recent gift which she was just learning to use, she pecked out the appeal which was to launch an Irish theatre. We propose to have performed in Dublin in the spring of every year certain Celtic and Irish plays, which, whatever be their degree of excellence, will be written with a high ambition, and so to build up a Celtic and Irish school of dramatic literature. In later days, she was to laugh a little at the slight pomposity of that manifesto, and to say that she couldn't think of any reason for calling the movement the Celtic movement, except that it was a movement meant to persuade the Scotch to begin buying our books, while we continued not to buy theirs. But in 1898, inexpertly typing letter after letter to a circle of social and literary and political acquaintances and friends, she sought far and wide for guarantors for the venture. And what a varied list of sponsors for an Irish theatre that list of Augusta Gregory's was. Douglas Hyde was on the list, and so was John Pentland Mahaffey. The Fenian John O'Leary was there, and so was that Lord Chancellor of Ireland who was savagely known as Peter the Packer. Countess Markovics was on the list, and so was the Viceroy of India. In the event, the guarantors were never called upon to meet any losses. Edward Martin did that. But a beginning had been made, and Augusta Gregory had found her life's work. Less than a year later, Yeats's Countess Kathleen and Martin's The Heather Field were produced in the ancient concert rooms. The Irish Literary Theatre, which launched the venture, absorbed the Fay Brothers, or was absorbed by them, and became the Irish National Theatre Society, and found in St. Teresa's Hall in Molesworth Street and in a hall in Camden Street important lodging places on the way to the Abbey Theatre. When, in 1904, the generosity of Miss Horniman gave the theatre a permanent home in Abbey Street, Lady Gregory was, so to speak, legally wedded to her theatre. The theatre's patent was granted by the courts in her name. Dame Augusta Gregory, as patentee, is hereby enjoined and commanded to gather, entertain, govern, privilege, and keep such and so many players. The patentee is forbidden to put upon the stage any exhibition of wild beasts or dangerous performers or to allow women or children to be hung from the flies or fixed positions from which they cannot release themselves. And so it began. On the evening of December the 27th, 1904, at the Abbey Theatre, the company presented On Bailey Strand by W.B. Yeats and Spreading the News by Lady Gregory. The story of that historic first night has been told too often to bear retelling, but the first-night audiences who found their way to the new playhouse in Abbey Street weren't the only ones interested in the plays. Down in Gort, there were some to wonder just what kind of plays the lady from Cool Park was writing. Paddy Hargrove has a story to tell of that production of Spreading the News. A father and a friend went to Dublin for the spring show. And that evening, they, had a, they were spending a few days in Dublin, and they said they'd walk into 
see what kind of a show Lady Gregory had at the Abbey. She be a local. Now they'd sooner have a chat and a drink than go to a show that wasn't interesting in the theatre. But they went in anyway and took some cheap seats so they could slip out handy. Um, when the curtain went up, my father, who was an auctioneer, he was greatly surprised to see a poster of his own advertising the auction, an auction, on the back of the stage. Yes, marriage to the theatre hadn't meant divorce from the big house. For the rest of her life, the house in Cool Park and the house in Abbey Street were to be the poles between which her life was to revolve. In later years, when our grandchildren were growing up in Cool, they were to accept this business of playwriting as part of the full life of Cool Park. One of them, now Mrs. Catherine Kennedy, very vividly recalls this. At a certain time, I mean, she'd do our housekeeping, see to the garden, go round to see what the men knew what to do in the garden. She'd come in, she'd go to the writing desk in the drawing room, and she'd write. If possible, she'd plan to have, say, two hours at it. And then possibly again in the afternoon. But she never put anything off because she had to write. If there was anything, if anyone wanted her, if anyone wanted to see her, it was never a question of, I'm busy writing, I can't see anyone. She'd always see anyone who wanted to see her. The woman whose conversation had nothing to suggest to George Moore that she had any literary faculty, had found herself as a writer. Moore himself suggests one cause for this when he tells how Yeats, on his early visits to Cool, set her going from cabin to cabin, taking down stories. But Lady Gregory herself is more explicit. I began by writing bits of dialogue when wanted. Mr Yeats used dictate parts of Dearmud and Grania to me, and I would suggest a sentence here and there. Later we wrote together Kathleen Hulahorn. For The Pot of Broth also I wrote dialogue, and I worked as well at the plot and construction of some of the poetic plays, especially The King's Threshold and Deirdre. For I had learned by this time a good deal about playwriting, to which I had never given much thought before. Her short plays, her comedies written to fill the Abbey's empty seats, and to tide its treasury over occurring periods of financial crisis, were proof of this skill in playwriting. Perhaps they are proof, too, of her success in combining so skilfully her twin roles as the old lady of Abbey Street and the lady of Cool Park. In Gort, Mrs Lally recalls Lady Gregory not as the playwright, but as the kindly patroness of the people amongst whom she lived. Yes, she used to visit the uh, hospital, the workhouse, every year, the week before Christmas, and bring up a quantity of tobacco and give an ounce or two ounces according to their age to each of the inmates of the workhouse. Perhaps the roles of patroness and playwright did not lie so far apart. Out of Lady Gregory's own memories, that word workhouse conjures up its own story. As to the poorhouse, the play later to be known as the workhouse ward, the idea came from a visit to Gort Workhouse one day, when I heard that the wife of an old man who had long been there, maimed by a knife that she had thrown at him in a quarrel, had herself now been brought into the hospital. I wondered how they would meet, as enemies or friends, and I thought they would like to end their days together for old sake's sake. 
This is how I wrote down my fable. Scene, ward of workhouse, two beds containing the old men. They are quarrelling. So the plays came out of the countryside of Cool and Kiltartan, of Gort and Kilbacente. But only half her life was now lived in Cool. Those whose life work was to be in the new theatre in Abbey Street would soon come to know her as familiarly as did the Gort folk who saw her about her gardens in Cool. Through all her long working life as housekeeper at the Abbey, Mrs. Martin remembered her first meeting with Lady Gregory. One cold morning, an old lady called and asked if Mr. Fay was in. He'll be in at half past one, I told her, but I didn't admit her. She looked very unusual to my mind. When Mr. Fay arrived, he inquired, Has Lady Gregory called? I said she had not. Then, about six o'clock, all the artists began to come for rehearsal. Another ring at the door. I opened it. To my great surprise, it was the same old lady. She went upstairs to where Mr Fay and all the artists were having tea before starting rehearsal. But only six nights later, this same old lady came to see the first performance. She was dressed in all her grandeur of satin tea jacket, her pearl necklace and her costly diamond rings. Yet so humble. I was taken back a step. This lady was Lady Gregory. Lady Gregory and her co-workers were very much in the public eye during those years. There were nights, all too many of them, when the public didn't allow its interest to take it as far as the box office. But the Abbey and its plays had a way of finding a place in the columns of the newspapers and in the talk of the town, and the people who ran the Abbey were very much personalities of their day. Brinsley McNamara blandly recaptures the spirit and atmosphere of those days and first nights. At first I only saw Lady Gregory in the distance, but at a near distance. This was early in 1909, when I first found my way to the Abbey Theatre and began to go there every week thereafter. I knew few people in Dublin then, the notable or literary, not at all. But I soon learned that there were famous people to be seen in the stalls of the Abbey every Thursday night. And from my sixpenny seat in the pit, I began to pick them out. Yes, that must be it. I used to become accustomed to the theatrical way he used to pause for a perceptible moment on the short staircase that led out from the mysterious regions behind, to fling back his wandering forelock and lance around the auditorium in the dreamiest way imaginable. A neighbour in the pit nearly spoiled my hero worship for good by whispering to me once that the pause and the poetic gesture and the dreamy lance around were all for the purpose of telling us who he was and to give him time to count the number of heads in the house before meeting Lady Gregory. At that very moment, in from the vestibule, in the full sail of her widow's weeds, would come the lady, who could be none other than Lady Gregory herself. And the two would find seats together. They would remain in close converse until the rise of the curtain, thus managing the theatre in public view, or else trying to put away some of the trouble that Miss Annie Elizabeth Frederica Horniman might be giving them just at that moment. You remember 
they never had been able to forgive her for having set him up so comfortably in the abbey. And after all the money she had spent on the place, the very notion that she should want to have even the slightest say in what they did there, what an idea, what a dreadful woman. That was a view from the back of the pit. From behind the footlights, players would keep an eye, often an anxious one, on the shadowy figure of the foundress in the front row of the stalls. Here is how Gabriel Fallon remembers the professional view. They always spoke of her as the old lady, with a stronger emphasis on the second word than on the first. They used to say, play up tonight, the old lady is in front. And everyone played up. If you happened to be at the Abbey that night, you might have noticed in the middle of the front row of the orchestra stalls, a little elderly lady, rather like what Queen Victoria might have been had Queen Victoria been a shade taller, a little better looking, more regal at her ease, and more at ease in her regality. That was Augusta, Lady Gregory of Cool Park, founder director of the Abbey Theatre. The old lady had a slight peculiarity of speech. On certain syllables, she lisped. This did not detract from her dignity. Indeed, it added to her charm. Charm, they said. Ha! Huh, but you didn't know her in the old days. She was a holy terror. Well, I've always doubted it. I knew that when the old lady said yes, she meant yes. And when she said no, even if it meant being pilloried in the title of a play by doing so, she meant no. She meant what she said. There was a no-nonsense quality about her. Backstage, everyone knew that she didn't think her work for the theatre ended when she'd written her play and taken her seat in the stalls. She was there at rehearsals and not merely as an interested spectator. Three of the Abbey players who worked with and under Lady Gregory, Maureen Delaney and Eric Gorman and May Craig, have very clear memories of those days in rehearsal. She always rehearsed me herself uh, in her own plays, and I had a very great habit of bobbing my head. So she was very worried over this. She made me walk up and down the stage during rehearsals <laughs> with a book on my head and a penny on the book. At that time, I didn't know Lady Gregory very well and I was terrified of her. And here I was walking up and down the stage, fearing the book and the penny would fall. The only thing that made her really angry was if you put in a word in any of our plays that she hadn't written. And she got very angry over that. But she was kindness itself. She would never hurt anyone or anything. But she was strict at work. She had a very fine sense of the stage and could correct in such a kind and gentle way all the faults common to young and inexperienced actors. It was always a great pleasure to be in a play which she herself was producing or helping to produce by a not word of correction or kindly criticism. And that's another thing she was very particular about, the way you wore your shawl. She would say to me, you have never worn a shawl. And I said, no. Well, she said, a shawl is part of a country woman's life. Now, when she's happy, she puts it slightly off her shoulders and her hands and her hips. When she's annoyed, she flicks it over her shoulders. And when she's in sorrow, she brings it straight across her forehead with two points 
down and just shows her face, and the rest of her is covered. Now you must practice all those things when you do the various parts. Perhaps a first meeting with the old lady of the Abbey could have been a little more intimidating. Somehow one feels that Brinsley McNamara found it so. It was some time in the autumn of the following year that I actually met Lady Gregory. I had conceived the unhappy notion of writing a play myself and had applied for membership of the Abbey Company so that I might gain some practical stage experience. They had put me down for a part in a forthcoming new play, and I had called to the green room for my script. She was there, and it must have been the suggestion of her name, Augusta, that made me feel I had come into an august presence. She regarded me with a steely eye, and her screwed-up mouth, as in the bust by Epstein, made me feel that she was weighing me up unfavorably. Then suddenly a faint smile began to break over her wintry face, and she told me that I had just come in time to hear her reading of a little play to the company. I was greatly flattered by her invitation, and felt that all the ice had thawed as if by magic. Her first seven short plays had been already produced and published, and I had heard that she was about to launch a further seven. This one, then, must be the first of the new series. While I listened as she read it, her cold eye was upon each of the players in turn, as if to catch any sign of wandering attention. Whatever they might be thinking of the play, they had to take it. For the moment, she was the grand lady who could not be doubted or questioned, and they were her servants. Yes, perhaps Lady Gregory sometimes did bring something of the house at Cool to the house in Abbey Street. A little air of the grand lady, perhaps. A nice touch of that dignity which creates an occasion. Two of her players, both women, one who worked with her for many years, and one who joined the company when the foundress had begun to become a presence rather than a personality, so remember her. They are May Craig and Rhea Mooney. In the evening when she'd come to the theatre, she always came in semi-evening dresses, square-cut neck, you see, and she wore a lace veil over her head. And then when she had visitors' horseshoe week, she always wore a star of her husband. A star, I, can, I don't know the name of it, and sometimes a band. In fact, there fo was a photograph taken of her with this. I think it was Yeats's father did it. A, a, a blue ribbon band across her shoulder down the waist with this star pinned on it. She had very, very grey hair, not white hair, and piercing brown eyes. They were a shrewd, and she only had to look at you when you could feel that she, she was reading your very thoughts. Very clear memory of her as a person, except that I get her mixed up with Queen Victoria in my mind. I never saw Queen Victoria. I've only seen her photographs. But it seemed to me that Lady Gregory uh, walked like an empress. I can imagine her as a child having been trained to walk with a half a dozen books on her head. She walked like uh, I imagined Queen Victoria would walk. And she carried herself magnificently. She was small. She had her hair 
uh, grey hair parted in the centre, straight, caught back in a bun, like Butler Yeats's photo uh, portrait. And um, she wore a black lace mantilla over her hair. I, <laughs> I can see her walking along the quays and meeting someone she knew slightly. She would incline her head. I wouldn't say bow, she just inclined her head slightly and moved straight ahead, looking straight ahead rather, moving like a swan on a lake. She was certainly the most dignified human being I've ever met or seen. That little air of dignity, of authority which must not be questioned, must have been a very useful attribute indeed to anyone in charge of the Abbey's affairs during those days when trouble was all too often just round the corner of Abbey Street. The days when, as Brinsley McNamara once said, Yeats appeared to be gloomily waiting for a fresh row rather than fresh plays to turn up. There were rows in plenty. Castle and Viceregal Lodge were goaded to fury by the playing of Blanco Posnet. The editor of Sinn Féin didn't find the Abbey half national enough for his taste. Countess Kathleen caused a furore and the playboy a riot. The phase left, and so did other fine players who had made the Abbey great. And more often than not, it was left to Lady Gregory to answer the calls for help. From viewpoints in Dublin and in Cool, Maureen Delaney and Catherine Kennedy remember just how it was. If there was any trouble at all in the Abbey, they just sent word to Gort, and she got the next train up, and we all used to say to one another, everything will come all right, the old lady is here. She hated travelling, couldn't bear it, but it never stopped her if she was wanted, if she got a wire from the Abbey, there was anything they wanted her up for, she'd come up. Yes, she was always there when the Abbey needed her, even to the extent of being ready to put on grease paint if the occasion called for it. Eric Gorman recalled her St. Patrick's Day when the sudden illness of an actress upset the theatre's plans. Her appearance as Kathleen O'Hoolhorn on St. Patrick's Day in 1919 showed her determination that the Abbey would keep faith with its supporters. As the 17th of March was a Sunday, Monday was a national holiday, and the billiard verses for the week was Kathleen O'Hoolhorn by W.B. Yeats and the mineral workers by William Boyle. On Saturday, the 16th of March, word came through that the actress down to play the part of Kathleen would not be available, and there was a suggestion that the rising of the moon should be substituted for Kathleen O'Hoolhorn. When Lady Gregory heard of this, she objected, and she said she herself would play Kathleen rather than let it drop. So the play was rehearsed on Sunday and Monday morning, and on Monday night, Lady Gregory made her first appearance as Kathleen on the Abbey stage. A fine performance, they say it was. And next day, Dublin, with perhaps a little chattiness in the compliment, was saying that it was also a courageous performance. For the Kathleen Uhurahorn of that St. Patrick's night in 1919 played her part while knowing that out beyond the footlights, there sat watching her, the Kathleen Lee Houlihan of that historic first night in 1902. Maud gone. But Augusta Gregory never seems to have lacked courage. Whether she was facing the anger of patriots or politicians or players, or listening to the torrents of complaint which the Abbey's great patroness, Miss Horniman, could so readily pour out to Yeats. You are ceaselessly victimised by Lady Gregory on the score of your gratitude for her kindness. You're being made a slave, your genius put under a net in that precious garden, and you're only let out when you are wanted to get something from me. 
all of which seems to have left Lady Gregory unruffled, outwardly at least. Or perhaps the situation was as Maud Gorn saw it, with the detached amusement of a player who has retired from the fray. They should have been allies, for both stood for art, for art's sake. But they both liked Willie too well. Miss Horniman brought back Italian plaques to decorate the abbey, but Lady Gregory carried Willie off to visit the Italian towns where they were made. But tiffs and differences with Miss Horniman, or even Miss Horniman's angry withdrawal from the abbey, weren't the sum and total of Lady Gregory's troubles. Mr. Boyle and Lady Gregory, said Yates about this time, are the only two writers who can be counted on to draw audiences. But drawing audiences isn't an easy job, as Lady Gregory herself so freely admitted. Building up an audience is a slow business, when there is anything unusual in the methods or the work. Often near midnight after the theatre had closed, I have gone round to the newspaper offices asking as a favour that notices might be put in, for we could pay for but few advertisements, and it was not always thought worthwhile to send a critic to our plays. Often I have gone out by the stage door when the curtain was up and come round into the auditorium by the front hall, hoping that in the dimness I might pass for a new arrival and so encourage the few scattered people in the stalls. That was in the old days, to be sure. But things were little better in the lean years leading up to the twenties. Again there were empty seats, a theatre closed by curfew, a box office with an empty cash box. It must have taken a lot of courage to wait for that moment of the turning of the tide. Gabriel Fallon recalls the delight of Lady Gregory when that moment came. Unlike Yeats, she was no believer in coterie theatre. She longed to see the Abbey packed to the doors. Sean O'Casey did this for her, and she loved him for doing it. On one occasion between a matinee and a night show of Juno and the Peacock, Barry Fitzgerald and I entertained her to tea. When we returned to the theatre, which was already heavily booked for the night performance, a queue stretched from the stalls in Mulber Street right round to the pit door. She made a stop at the corner in order that she could revel in the Abbey's newly found popularity. She turned to me and said, There are times in my life when I love my fellow man with a great intensity. This is one of them. O'Casey had come to take the Abbey out of the doldrums. And Lady Gregory could claim a major part in discovering him. He is, of course, happy at the success of his play. And I said, you must feel now that we were right in not putting on that first one you sent in, the crimson in the tricolour. I was inclined to put it on because some of it was so good, and I thought you might learn by seeing it on the stage. He said, you were right not to put it on. I can't read it myself now. I owe a great deal to you and Mr. Yates and Mr. Robinson, but you, above all, you gave me encouragement. And it was you who said to me upstairs in the office, I could show you the very spot where you stood. Mr. Casey, your gift is characterization. And so I threw over my theories and worked at characters, and this is the result. Later, she was to stand by O'Casey when the Abbey audience reserved its highest compliment for him and booed and hissed and protested at his plough and the stars. And inevitably, he too went to cool 
and carved his name upon the great copper beech. There she was, waiting for him, a trim, stout, sturdy figure, standing upright and still on the platform, ready to guide him safely down to Gort, grimly patient in the midst of the talkative, quickly moving crowd. A strange, lone figure she looked in a third-class carriage, stuck tight in a mess of peasants and small farmers, and they with baskets on their laps or live fowls clutched in their hands. While one woman, young and lively, had a big goose, its legs and wings tied with cord at her feet, so fat it could only gabble, mixing its comic cries with the eager, animated chatter of the crowd. There, said Lady Gregory, suddenly pointing out of a window, there's Crockwell, where the police were always half afraid to stir, eating, drinking and sleeping behind iron doors, thick walls and steel-shuttered windows. We'll pass our drachen later on, remembering what Davis sang, and fleet as dear the Normans ran through Curlis Pass and Ardrahan. And will again, please God, murmured a quiet voice from a corner. She had a bit of a lisp, thought Sean, and I only after noticing it now. Look at her there with all her elegance, well at ease among the chattering crowd of common people. So why shouldn't I be steady in my mind, at coming to a big house among rare silver and the best of china, sleeping in a bounce's bed and handling divers tools at food never seen before. And he took heart and felt strong, looking at the calm, handsome old face, smiling at the chatter of the people and the frightened cackling of the fowls. But Olcasey soon shed his nervousness about this first visit to the big house. Soon he, as so many others whose initials are on the Copper Beach did, was enjoying the restfulness and quiet that Lady Gregory planned for her visitors to Cool Park. Getting over his shyness when Mrs. Warren, wife of the rector of Gort, came to tea, he was soon delighting the good lady with tales of his regular attendance at Sunday school and of his disappointment when the book prizes he won, Alone in Zululand, and Little Crowns and How to Win Them, turned out to be not rousing tales of adventure, but elevating stories of missionaries and converts in darkest Africa. And home again in Cool Park, his hostess was back again at the busy round of managing her estate and gardens and watching over the growing up of her grandchildren. She was always there, just the same, small little old lady, and yet frightfully young in herself, interested in everything we did. Always there, it didn't matter if she was in the middle of writing, if we went in and wanted to show a bird's egg or anything we'd got. She never sort of said, oh, run away, I'm busy. She was never too busy to be interested in what we were doing or to help us. She gave us lessons very often in the morning, simple arithmetic. And every single day when we were small, as soon as we'd had our breakfast, we had to read a chapter out of the Bible. That she was very, very keen about, that we must be brought up yeah. believers. And of course, she was such a Christian herself. Everything, I mean, she never, she always looked for the best in people. She never looked for the worst. If she found the worst, she never talked about it, which is always more interesting very often than the good in people, as you know, in the course of conversation. But she always expected and looked for good. And I think that's one of the reasons why she always wanted to help people, writers or people who wanted work, anything that she could do, 
local people in trouble. She was always sorry for them. She was always doing what she could. She was terribly fond of children, and children, I think, were always at ease with her. I think possibly at first, stranger children seeing her looked upon her perhaps as an old lady, you know, and were rather awed by her. And then after a couple of minutes, they'd be absolutely at their ease. And though she was a disciplinarian, as far as we were concerned, it was never um, a question of her having to raise her voice or order us anywhere. She'd just say, now it's time for bed, off with you. And we'd go. She <coughs> loved her trees. She loved her woods. And she used to drive round frequently. Not daily, I shouldn't think. They'd look, looking back on it, one would almost say daily. She used to drive round in the donkey trap, seeing how the trees were doing. And... Um, at one time there was a sawmill working down at one end and she used to go down to make sure that they were only cutting the trees they were meant to cut and planning what she would plant where they'd been cleared. Almost it seems as if the woman in widow's weeds, standing amongst her five tall brothers beside the snow-covered grave of her husband, had not really changed. As if she had found the place that anyone on that long-ago day in 1892 would have forecast for her, keeping a watchful eye on the workmen in yard and the main, spreading nets in the vinery for the ripening nectarines to fall into, gathering her grandchildren about her to puzzle out the crossword and punch, taking a housewife's pride in covering the last of the pots of plum jam she had just made, and finding time to do little work on a scenario for a play about Aristotle. But it wasn't like that at all. And Lady Gregory herself was one of the quickest to see just how fundamentally the years had changed her. The house at Roxburgh, my old home, had once been attacked by white boys. My father had defended it, firing from the window, and it was not hard to believe that another attack might be made. It seemed a good occasion for being allowed to learn to shoot with my brothers. But that was in those days not thought fitting, even in self-defence, for a girl. And my gun was never loaded with anything more weighty than a copper cap. So, when this new business of the theatre brought me to meet, amongst many others, till then unknown, John O'Leary, I remembered those days and the excitement of a Fenian's escape. Might he not be hiding in our own woods or haylofts? And I wondered to find that not only nationalists admired and respected so wild and dangerous a rebel, the change from the girl who longed for a gun to shoot at white boys to the woman who defiantly staged Terence McSweeney's The Revolutionist in the dark days of February 1921 has a dramatic quality of completeness. But the development of Augusta Gregory into a woman dedicated to the service of her country has a completeness that goes deeper than the drama of courageous gesture. Her work in the Abbey had helped to give the country a new personality, but that work had subtly developed and altered her own personality. One facet of this development is seen by Brinsley McNamara. It had often struck me, as she read one of her little plays, that she had become even as an old woman of Ireland, and we could think that that sort of simplicity must have befallen her while gathering material for her books and plays in the cabins and cottages of Clare Galway where she had been industriously plied with folklore specially invented for her visits, and all of which she had innocently accepted. 
perhaps not so innocently, but consciously for her purpose, which was to lead the Abbey away from the elaborate Yeatsian dream of an art theatre into a sort of folk theatre where simple people could laugh their fill. So the great copper beech in cool grew in girth, the carved initials growing greater in size as the tree grew, and as those whose initials are carved there grew in stature during the years of their association with Augusta Gregory. Until the last days of her life, the old lady continued to work untiringly at the tasks she had set herself when she pecked out on her new typewriter her appeal for guarantors for a new theatre. She took command of the Abbey players during their first tour of America and valiantly led them through the showers of brickbats and overripe vegetables which greeted their presentation of The Playboy, shrewdly enlisting the aid of ex-president Theodore Roosevelt in her cause. She was the driving force behind the negotiations which won government aid for the Abbey. In the fight to win back for Ireland the pictures of her nephew, Sir Hugh Lane, she wrote, she travelled, she begged, pleaded, reasoned, coaxed and cajoled in her unflagging efforts to give effect to what she knew were Lane's true intentions. Her work for Ireland did not cease until her death. And with her death time died so much more. It is sad to think that now not a stone remains upon a stone of her house at Cool Park, that house of so many memories, which surely should have been permitted to remain as a place of literary pilgrimage and protected as a national monument. Not everyone was indifferent to the fate of that historic house. Mr. Frank Curran of Loch Ray had a kindly thought. He purchased from the demolition contractor the hall door of Cool, and presented the knocker mounted on a small piece of the door to the abbey. Many a hand that now belongs to history had lifted that knocker, and it was a pathetic memento of all that, for lifted now it would only fall with a tin sound upon emptiness forevermore. But tragedy was still to pursue that last bit of the house in Cool Park. For although it was not destroyed in the Abbey Fire of 1951, it was stolen by a souvenir hunter who wanted to boast around the town that he had a piece of the Abbey at home in the house. Later, getting afraid of the possible consequences of his theft, the knocker was left back in the theatre, but without the bit of the door. It has, I understand, now descended to the stage props for possible use in plays with a knocker in them. And if ever used, it should make as terrible a sound as the knocking in Macbeth and strike coal into the heart to tell of a deed of shame which was the destruction of Lady Gregory's house. Perhaps the last words should be the words of William Butler Yeats, who walked in the seven woods of Cool and saw nine and fifty swans suddenly mount and scatter, wheeling in great broken rings above the beauty of water amongst the trees. Here, traveller, scholar, poet, take your stand. When all these rooms and passages are gone, when nettles wave upon a shapeless mound, and saplings root amongst the broken stone, and dedicate... Eyes bent upon the ground, back turned upon the brightness of the sun and all the sensuality of the shade. A moment's memory to that laureled head.
That was A Tree in Cool, a feature on Lady Gregory by Philip Rooney. Those taking part were Seamus Ford as narrator, Thomas Studley, George Green, Jeanette Waddell, Ivan Henley, Joseph D., Florence Lynch, Deirdre O'Mara, Ethna Dunn, Arthur O'Sullivan and Frank O'Dwyer. You also heard the voices of Brinsley McNamara, Gabriel Fallon, Maureen Delaney, Eric Gorman, May Craig, Rhea Mooney, Dennis O'Brien, Kathleen Kennedy, Mrs. Lally, and Patrick Hargrove. The producer was P.J. O'Connor.